Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the Toy Photographers Podcast, the official podcast of toyphotographers.com. My name is James Garcia, and we've got a great show lined up for you today. I have two very special guests. First of all is our very own Shelly Corbett. Shelly, welcome back to the show. Hey, James. Thanks for having me. Yeah, yeah. It's good to have you here for the second time in like a couple weeks now, so that's exciting. And uh, we have a very special guest. We have award-winning Lego builder, VFX artist, creator of Crazy Bricks, and so much more. Mr. Guy Hember. Guy, welcome to the show. James, thank you uh, so much for uh, inviting me. Yes, yeah, it was actually a recommended recommendation from Shelly herself. Um, Shelly, can you talk a little bit about why Guy kind of caught your radar just now and, and why you wanted to get him onto the show? Nefarious reasons. Uh, Guy is a longtime friend, well, long, sort of longtime, and he has a Kickstarter coming up uh, with one of my, with some of my favorite figures, which are the mouse guard figures. And I've been photographing them a lot lately. And I just thought, you know, he's such an inspiration with all many of the parts and characters that he's created that we see in the photography community. I thought it'd be interesting to talk with a creator of toys about what it takes to take it from idea to inception to to manufacturing and how to sell it. I just thought it'd be an interesting process to just pick his brain about. Yeah, I completely agree. I've always loved Guy's work, and I think I've seen most of it from the stuff that you photographed over the years of, of his various characters and pieces and stuff. So it's really, I'm really excited just to kind of get a glimpse behind the scenes a little bit at uh, how this stuff happens and and where all of this comes from. So Guy, thank you for agreeing to do it and thank you for being here. Before we jump into your various projects and, and Kickstarters and, and that kind of thing, Shelly has actually informed me that you were a, you worked in movie special effects before. Can you talk a little bit about how you got into that and, and what you were doing? Yeah, um, I, I pretty much studied uh, industrial design in college. I, uh, I started as a computer sciences major after a fairly short time in that, I kind of looked around the classroom and all the people I was with, and I was like, man, these are these are not my peeps. These are not my peoples. And uh, I was kind of trying to figure out, like, where I would end up. And uh, a guy in one of my Spanish classes just brought in some interesting project or something, and we got to talking about it. And he explained that he was in the industrial design program at the college we were at. And I was like, industrial design, what's that? And he was like, well, that's kind of in between traditional sort of uh, engineering, mechanical engineering, and sort of aesthetics and marketing. It's kind of this in-between place. And when he described all the stuff they did and what, what the program taught, I was like, you know, lightning him. I was like, this is what I should be doing. <clears throat> I'm a maker. I like to make stuff. I've always liked to learn things create things. Uh, I, I used to just terrorize my dad's toolbox as a kid because I was always raiding it for things. And I just lucked into finding the right path for myself, which was uh, industrial design. It pretty much ticks all the boxes for what I like to do and, and what fits my um, skill set. And in that program, there was uh, a guy I met who knew the folks over at Stan Winston Studios. Uh, Stan did the uh, second Alien film. He did Terminator films, Jurassic Park, like a long list of some of the, the best special effects animatronic shows uh, that have come out. Now the studio is called Legacy, but I got a chance with this friend that I knew from college to go visit the studio. And it was just like being in a magic amusement park. There was oh, I bet. <laughs> the Terminator robot over there and the monster squad characters over there and pumpkin head and all of these great things. And that's probably what really planted the idea of, Hey, maybe I go this next step too. And, you know, special makeup effects, animatronics, maybe that's where I should be looking at. Cause that certainly looks cool and fun. Um, as a kid, I was very familiar with uh, Cinefix, Cinemagic Magazine, thing that was going on by then. I had actually done some uh, some prosthetic makeups as a kid in like middle school. I had done stop motion puppet armature. So all that stuff was just seemed like a fun thing to learn, but the idea of doing it for a living 
for some reason never connected with me until uh, visiting Stan Winston Studios in my misspent youth. And um, from there, it was like my my senior year in college. Uh, I got a bunch of names for places to kind of shop around my portfolio at the time. I got offered a job, like my second or third place I interviewed, and basically started a career in film from that point forward. And uh, until I, I sort of retired out from there, I think, I don't know, I've done like 50 feature films and countless commercials and wow. all kinds of special prop projects and things. Yeah, if you poke around IMDb, um, Internet Movie Database, it's certainly not hard to look me up and see all the stuff that I've worked on. Um, at a certain point, it becomes a blur. Like you just, you work on so many films, you forget like all the films you worked on. Uh, but that's kind of how the whole film thing started. And I worked on some amazing stuff, uh, worked on Independence Day, uh, the Underworld films, uh, actually ended up eventually back over at Stan Winston's and worked on Edward Scissorhands and Predator 2. Just a big, long list of uh, great films. I was very fortunate to kind of be uh, working in film during sort of the golden age of special makeup effects. You know, in its best days, it's really the coolest job you could work probably in the universe. And uh, in its worst days, it's probably the most horrible job you can work in the universe. (laughs) Yeah, it's a great thing. The nice part is you're constantly going from project to project, film to film. So... No matter how bad it is, the next one might get better. Or no matter how good it is, you're like, oh, I can't get better than this. And somehow you work on a show that's even better than that. So, um, yeah, it's super fun. I have tons of friends still in the film industry. Um, I just I think I kind of did everything I wanted to do and said everything I wanted to say there and uh, just kind of moved onward after that. Yeah, I had a great time doing film, though. Yeah, that sounds like uh, it would be amazing. I, I just can't imagine being involved that much with the uh, creature effects and, and makeup and all that stuff just sounds so exciting. And I've always been a huge fan of that stuff myself. Um, yeah, I was going to ask how you kind of transitioned from doing that to what you're doing now and, and kind of what you did before now too, with your steampunk Lego stuff and creating crazy bricks and digi legs and crazy arms and mouse guard and all of this stuff that you're doing now. How did, how did that transition happen? And were you always drawn to Lego and stuff or was that a newfound passion after your VFX stuff? Uh, I built with Lego as a kid and then it kind of, you know, got put aside eventually. And then you kind of enter what you would call your dark ages where Mm -hmm. (laughs) behind you. I did do some work with technic based sets, uh, prototyping things for work projects and stuff. So I had bought a couple technic sets for that, but it really wasn't until my son was born that I started to get back into Lego actively and get a couple sets and, he just kind of took to it right away like I did. And there was a, just kind of a point where he was old enough to go out and he was online and he was following a lot of the builders on Flickr uh, back when that was a really relevant hub for uh, Lego building and where all the, uh, the AFOLs, which stands for Adult Fan of Lego, um, that's kind of where they all sort of gathered and communicated. And the idea came to me. It's like, you know what? I'm going to take him up to Seattle to the, the big Lego convention. It'll be a bit of a surprise. And we went up there and just had a blast. You saw, you know, you get to see all these fantastic blocks uh, that people have built. Uh, Mock stands for my own creation. And um, as I met a lot of the builders and stuff, it was very... Uh, evident they were very friendly they really liked sharing and talking about what they were up to and they pretty much were all you know artists uh of various levels who just were using lego their medium to uh, build things with and uh, after that convention i was like you know what i could do this and i discovered a uh, brick link or crack link as we like to call it in the <laughs> which is like Wait, you mean I can buy as many parts as I want in any color, like any time? And once you kind of realize there's this sort of infinite pipeline of pieces, you just start buying things and building stuff. And uh, I just took to steampunk right away for whatever reason and built a bunch of pretty over-the-top elaborate steampunk builds and 
posted them online and they immediately got picked up by the largest uh, Lego blog, which is Brothers Brick, and they did a whole feature article about them. So I just figured, oh, you just build stuff and everyone, it goes online. That's cool. So I built a couple other things. They were all very well received too and uh, just started to become better and better friends with a lot of the folks in the Lego community. And then I was just kind of hooked. I started going to uh, these, you know, regularly to the convention in Seattle, BrickCon, and then uh, the one in Chicago, Brick World, and that probably would have just been that. I would have just kept building and doing things until, um, gosh, I don't know when the year was, but there was a theme for BrickCon, and it was pigs versus cows, and because every year has a theme, you know, usually there are things like the communities and rainbows and or you know the future of passion they're, they're very kind of idealized and sort aspirational of, yeah big and fluffy cuddly themes but this this year was like no pigs versus cows <laughs> yeah. i want to be in pedigree. the rich meeting where that happened where somebody was like you know what forget rainbows let's do something fun <laughs> i mean they were down in the hotel bar if that is telling but it was just I remember walking past and they said, theme's going to be pigs versus cows. What do you think? And I said, that's the best theme I've ever heard of ever. Um, and then like a couple of days after that, I was thinking, you know, we really don't have any great pig or cow minifigures. You know, I could totally make those. I could put the connections together, engineer it out, do the creative on it. Um, and I approached the uh, guy in charge of BrickCon. I said, hey, would you be okay with the idea of me, you know, as a Kickstarter making pig and cow heads that, uh, you know, we could use for next year's thing. And I, you know, make them available to you guys at cost. And we encourage everyone in the convention to, you know, get them and participate. And that's pretty much how it all started from there. Hmm. Um, that was my first Kickstarter project way back when, and it's just kind of continued to move forward from there. Um, Eventually, I, I called, you know, this side hobby company, Crazy Bricks, and uh, have just keep kind of building and, and creating further from that point. That's amazing. I love that you you literally just created it from, from the ground up yourself. And, and, you know, with the help of Kickstarter and stuff like that, too. But that you just, I like that you're like, well, you know, we're, there's this piece missing or this this uh, section missing that I can f fill in and you did that. <laughs> I think that's awesome. And it's just spiraled from there and you've, you've created so many things since. So yeah, your, your film, your film work just kind of tells you that pretty much you can make anything because that's kind of the job, you know, you'll get a script and it'll be, you know, giant licorice attacks a village and then <laughs> you got to make giant licorice, you know, whatever it is, you just assume it can be done somehow. And, and that's kind of what you're trained to do is, is figure out that path to make whatever that thing is. That's awesome. Yeah. I was going to ask if, if that prior experience and, you know, the VFX stuff had helped what you're doing now. And I was thinking of it more from the technical side, like working with uh, digital programs and stuff like that. But it, it does make sense that creatively there would also be that same kind of drive and um, same kind of ability to, to create things out of thin air like that. Yeah. I mean, it's, and that probably comes more from industrial design too. It's just sort of, uh, you know, we have an end goal and we have a date. And then what do we have to do between now and then to make that happen? Um, and some people are really comfortable in that world and some people aren't. And I guess I've always been comfortable with that. Like, okay, what do we got to do? How much do we got to do it with? When's it due? And then you just start kind of working backwards from there and see if it can be done. Yeah, yeah, that makes total sense. Uh, Shelly, do you remember when you first discovered Guy's work and, and started falling in love with some of the characters and stuff he was creating? I the first time I saw Guy's work was at when I first saw the Mouse Guard build, and I actually think that was at the S Seattle Comic Con, the Emerald City Comic Con. I think that might have been the first time I saw it and was like blown away. And then I saw Guy that that so that was in March of about probably four years ago, maybe. And then uh, saw someone connected me with him at. At, at Bricon that fall and like said, Shelly, the guy with the mice, he's, he's over there. You need, and I literally dropped what I was doing and ran over and bought everything he had. 
a nice guy. <laughs> and all the other fun stuff is like, oh my god, he's got skulls. I must have the skulls. Yeah, Shelly Shelly's enthusiasm. Wait, you didn't ask me when I first fell in love with Shelly. Well, that was, that was going to be my next follow-up question is, uh, you know, were, were you aware at all of her photography and stuff before she came up and bought all of your stuff or was, did that happen afterwards? There was just this, this lady with these crazy eyes that was throwing money at me. And I was like, <laughs> what I can do to help this person is now my life goal. That is it. I found my purpose to help her. No, um, Shelly, I, I had, I don't think I had a really good grasp of, uh, how amazing a photographer she was because a lot of times you'll meet people and they're very enthusiastic. And of course, that's the kind of people you want to meet. And I, I think, yeah, however it worked out, I, I don't know, Shelly, how, how long after the time when we first met did you first expose me to your photographs? I, I, it must have been after I started photographing the mouse guard because I... Because I, I don't show my work at BrickCon anymore because when I do, people just kind of like look at me and say, oh, okay, that's that's nice. And there's no reaction. So I just, I move on. Uh, so I, I think it was probably after I started working more with the figures. I think you probably, I probably tagged you online a few times. That might have been when you saw them. And then you connected yeah. me with David, which was super cool, who is the um, the holder of the intellectual property and the one who created the whole figure. So you connected me with David. And then I made you guys the book of all the photos I'd taken at that time, which was a lot of fun. I think that's yeah, kind of where it started. I think like the first couple photos I saw of hers, it, it was really clear to me that this was someone doing something exceptional because a lot of you know, Lego photography is almost like catalog photography. It's just like, you know, two two light points, maybe a fill, take a shot, and it looks like you put it in Sears catalog or, you know, maybe in, in the, the back of uh, William Sonoma, like, oh, here's a pepper grinder. Here's a Lego part. <laughs> kind of boring, but uh, really quickly you could tell that Shelley's goal almost is to kind of make the thing she's taking a photograph of kind of invisible, like you kind of feel you've, you've accidentally stumbled upon a private moment with these little characters mm -hmm. and it's very natural and very evocative. And uh, I always tell her, it's like, like it's, it's, it reaches toward your emotions kind of more so than anything else. And I think um, that's a, a really hard thing to consistently pull off. Like I'll sometimes luck into a photo like, Oh man, that just all lined up and it, makes people giggle, but I don't think I do that consistently. Wherein, uh, when you look at Shelly's photos and you know, they've only gotten better in the time I've known her, they're just kind of little special environments. They're like little, little biospheres of coolness. And, you know, you, she really brings a, a, a pulse to those little plastic figures. Yeah. It's I'm, I'm a fan of hers. If you haven't figured that out. <laughs> we have a very strong mutual admiration society going I, I mean, we could talk about the Victorians, the crazy arms, the digi legs. I mean, there's nothing you've created that I haven't fallen in love with and wanted to go out and bring alive. And I thank you from the bottom of my heart for your creativity. Well, thank you. Well, I, Shelley actually has a special place because I kind of kind of trying to always get her stuff earlier than anyone else because I know she'll take cool photos with it. Hmm. So she actually knows certain things that are like deeply buried in the uh in the design closet um for things so she kind of gets access to stuff ahead of anyone else she's special if she's very special <laughs> and i'm so excited about what's coming out this year but don't you say anything okay. Shh. <laughs> yeah, yeah we'll um, get there we'll get there um okay. yeah guy what is it like seeing your your pieces embraced and photographed by the community like this you know shelly started doing it but a bunch of other people over time too have bought and photographed your pieces what is it like seeing seeing that and does that drive the stuff that you create next well i i tend to do a lot of um accessory things as well so oftentimes the things i make the goal is to give people pieces to build greater things from hmm. so you know, I might have some initial ideas what what will happen with something, and then you know when it gets out into the world, and you have like hundreds of thousands of brains all playing with parts you've done, um, 
that's kind of a thrill to see people discover and create stuff with it. Um, what's one, a good example. Oh, okay. On the crazy arms, uh, one of them is straight out, like you're pointing to the side and one of them is kind of a 90 degree bend. Like you're holding uh, maybe like a beer mug in front of you. And some guy took the white bent crazy arm and just stuck it on a regular kind of world war two minifigure and left it at that. And it basically became like a little cast he had on or a little wrapped arm, like an injury. It was just kind of the simplest yet most genius thing. And seeing that, that's just awesome to me. Like, I think your, you know, your main goal as a maker is if you can inspire people to do stuff they might not have done otherwise, that's probably the, the, the real ultimate uh, flattery that you could hope for. Is that, or, you know, whenever someone like, like Shelly takes an amazing picture with something you've done, again, you, you couldn't ask for more praise than that, that, that you, you, you made something that then helped create something 10 times, 20 times greater uh, than what your original idea was. And that's always going to be a buzz for me. Yeah. I, I, I like to see that. I like to see people smile when they build stuff that I've been a part of. Um, Obviously, I'm a big supporter of the the Lego uh, fan community. Um, I just I just like making stuff. Yeah, it's it's always enjoyable. It's there's always a certain magic when something goes from, you know, a cocktail napkin sketch to a injection molded part in your hand. Um, although that process takes a long time, that's always very magical to me too. The first time pieces show up from the factory, and you're like, this is real. This is a it's actually becoming a thing. I don't think that'll ever uh, not be exciting for me. Yeah, I, I can imagine. And thank you for the good segue there, because I wanted to ask kind of what goes into actually designing, making, and selling your products. Can you talk a little bit about what the process is? Like, how does something go from a cocktail napkin to being photographed by somebody else somewhere else around the world? Well, uh, first, you got to have a, a good supply of cocktail napkins. <laughs> That's the first step. So. Go buy some of those and you'll need a crayon because you got to be able to write on it. Um, but a lot of it is just uh, sorting out your good ideas from bad ideas at first. So usually to get to one or two good ideas, you have to go through a dozen bad ones. And I think that's just industrial design thinking also. You always realize your first idea is always going to be your worst idea. So you got to get the, the bad and mediocre ones out of your system and then somewhere buried under those bad solutions is a good solution or a good idea. Um, I usually have like five pages of ideas broken down by colors or a couple other systems because uh, you tend to run things in groups. So if you're going to uh, know you're going to be running a lot of red parts, let's say, you want to try to find parts that will fill it, fit into that world of red pieces as long as you're going to be doing a mold on it. So you'll get your initial idea. Um, you'll do some sketches. I'll do some stuff in a CAD and just kind of look at dimensions, see how tolerances will work. And then typically I'll, I'll do a pretty fully realized design on that, either just purely all my stuff, or uh, I have a couple digital sculptors that I work with for more organic things. And once those are done and they look like those 3d models are okay. Um, I'll then grow that in a uh, prototyping machine, which will usually be, you know, either laser driven or ultraviolet light driven. It'll be centered powder or it'll be resin. There's, there's like a billion different ways that people create stuff now, but um, I have a machine that I'm, I'm fortunate enough to get access to that does really tight, high resolution, um, high tolerance models based on the digital models. And then uh, when that's now a physical piece in your hand, you can actually try it out. There's things you'll discover about it or things that might have looked good on the computer screen that may not translate to having it held there in your hand live. And uh, once that's at that point, that's usually far enough where um, if it's Kickstarter worthy, we'll go ahead and think about making a campaign for it. So uh, that's, that's a lot of work in Kickstarter land it's always strange when I, when I look at a good Kickstarter and I look at how clean and light and flowing it all is, I always realize all the work it takes to make that happen. Um, 
And it just usually takes a couple weeks, I think, to get a good Kickstarter together, you know, getting all the elements and resources together and trying to tell everybody and get them excited about your idea without telling them too much or um, bogging it down with too many explanations or too many details. If the, if the projects that go through Kickstarter, you know, you if you raise enough funds, then from there, um, I have a factory I work with that I will supply my um, digital models to. At the point that they get them, all of the uh, tolerances are already built in. There may be a few call-outs for a couple uh, clutch fits and whatnot. Um, I will lightly help them engineer the molds, but I'm not a uh, plastic injection mold engineer by any stretch. I make the parts. Someone else has to figure out you know, where they need to go to flow right in the mold. Um, toy molds or many molds are usually carved out of steel or aluminum. So um, they can be used to make hundreds of thousands of parts in a fairly short time. Um, generally takes anywhere from six weeks to three months to create a mold, depending on uh, how many inserts are in it, how elaborate it is, uh, how many cavities are involved. Then when a mold is done, um, you'll do your initial tests on running it. And the, the hard part or the magic for anything that's got to work in the Lego system is what's called the clutch fit. Clutch fit is sort of this indescribable click, if you will, or resistance. So it has to have enough resistance to make a part stick to another part, but not so much resistance that you can't pull it apart with a certain amount of pressure. Hmm. That it is the hardest thing to achieve um, on any molded project like that. So when you get a lot of stuff, uh, knockoff brands and weird things from China, that's usually the, some of the first stuff that you'll notice as a problem is the clutch fits are not correct or not compatible in the, the Lego system. Um, although they're getting better, China is is scary the level of quality that some of the manufacturers make over there now. Yeah, it's it's getting closer and closer to Lego every day. Um, I mainly deal with minifigure stuff, so that's kind of where my focus tends to be. Um, oh, and I've also been flattered. I've had one of my figures knocked off by China already, too, which is kind of a little feather in the cap. Which one was that? Uh, the carrot figure. Yeah, someone pointed out to me, they were like, hey, are you selling those in China? And I go, no, and went online and followed the link. And sure enough, there was my carrot figure uh, had already been knocked off and was was selling in some bogus place in China. I mean, I couldn't really even get angry about it. It was kind of a, a neat compliment, I guess. And is there anything you can do about that, you know, when you find something like that? Or is it, you know, um, kind you of know, People that have been knocked off a lot, lot worse than me on a much grander scale. Um, any of my discussions with them have kind of been the um, amount of time and money you would have to throw at it um, would be near impossible to probably recover back. Uh, there are things, you know, where it'll say like, hey, see something goofy, report it. And I've done that and have never heard back from anyone in regard to that. And uh, Legos made some progress recently. But, you know, even with their infinite cash and resources, pretty much I think that that whole knockoff uh, culture in China just means like, oh, we, we stole Shelly Corbett photography. OK, we're going to call our company now Belly Borbit photography. And then when you chase that one down, it'll be Melly Forbit photography. They'll just keep changing the signs on the door of the factory or moving it down the street and I just don't know where as a, uh, you know, a fairly humble manufacturer of things, you would ever really, ever, ever really have any resolution there that would be of any substance. Yeah, even Lego, it's just a game of whack-a-mole. Yeah. <laughs> kind of like that, yeah. So, Guy, I want to go back to the, this from, from sketch to manufacturing, would you say that's a six-month process, a year or longer? About how long oh, from, for you? From sketch to like you have finished product in your hand. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, most things are. What's the triangle? It's either time, money, or quality. Um, so, if you throw enough money at a project, in my experience, 
the fastest I've turned around has been, you know, as far as a fully realized production mill has been three months. Um, but that was like pretty much a blank check to just expedite everything in the whole process. Um, but typically eh, it's probably more like a, a six month process to longer. Um, I might have a sketch or an idea and do it. And I might even create a model just cause I want to see it, but won't actually pursue it or find the right project for it until later. Um, the, the one that's coming after the one that we're going to talk about, that one probably started four months ago. Um, and the first physical prototype models of that are just being grown right now. But that's like the craziest project. That, that's one in a, future, in a future podcast, we'll talk about that one. Yeah. <laughs> but that's probably my most elaborate one to date when that one comes out. That'll be okay, pretty. Okay, so back to, to uh, Mouse Guard. So it's, it's all pretty much the same head, different colors this time around, different bodies. But one of the figures has a very distinct difference than the ones in the past with the bite out of the ear and the clawed eye. Did you make create a new model for that? A new injection oh, okay. mold? Or well, we can, so it sounds like we can go deep into Mouse Guard or Bricks of the Mouse Guard 2. Um, yeah, let's so do it. Brief background, uh, in 2015 uh, was the 10-year anniversary of Mouse Guard. Mouse Guard is an amazing book series that's uh, written and illustrated by David Peterson. Um, if you have not discovered those books, turn off your podcasting device. Look them up on Amazon. Go buy a couple of them. They are amazing books. Uh, they've won tons of awards for storytelling, illustration. Um, David, as Shelley may have mentioned, is probably one of the nicest, humble for the talent level that he was blessed with kind of people uh, I've met just a really genuinely amazing artist uh, the stories are very very deep I've, I've reread them a bunch creatively but based on the, these wealth of stories um, a builder up in Seattle uh, Alice who goes by Bippity Bricks online uh, Alice um, why am I Pierce two, two names Finch. help me on this Shelly Finch Alice Finch. That's it. Pierce Finch. Um, Alice, who's an amazing, amazing builder. She built a whole Hogwarts at minifigure scale. So she's a little bit Lego crazy, like, like she should be. She came up with an idea to create the full world of the mouse guard bricks. Um, the catch being there aren't really any mouse minifigures to build that from. Uh, there was a mouse head they had done in a series called Fabuland way long ago that's kind of too big, but kind of fun. So she said, hey, would you be interested uh, in helping us create the heads for this and maybe some of the specific weapons? And um, I knew if Alice was going to be involved in it, it was going to be a pretty thorough and like jaw-dropping display. So it really wasn't a question for me, would I want to be a part of it? Because I was like, yes. Um, I said, you know what, if I'm going to do this, I would like to talk to um, the holder of the intellectual property and see if I could formally license them, and then I'll do it as a Kickstarter as well. So uh, that led to the project called Bricks of the Mouse Guard, um, did it as a Kickstarter. We produced all the heads for the giant display. Uh, after the fact, we made a bunch of fully realized custom figures from the uh, books themselves, and they were pretty popular. We we made just a, a you know not overly large run of them, and they kind of all sold out. And uh, people just kept asking me about them. And um, Mouse Guard was being sort of bounced around town as a potential movie project. And in my mind, I was thinking like, oh well, there goes that. You know, I'll I'll never have the chance to do those again because. Someone like a Warner Brothers or Sony is going to take it and run with it, which would have been fantastic. Unfortunately, for whatever kooky Machiavellian, Machiavellian plans that went awry, someone decided not to move that project forward. I can't imagine why you wouldn't, because it is—it's—it's it's an amazing story, and the characters are just killer. 
but sadly it, it it got hooked up somewhere in that production process and with a background in film i can tell you who knows what madness took place there or what silliness you know we'll probably never know exactly so i was i was very bummed out because i would have loved to see it as a film um some time had passed and uh i would see david at uh different conventions and we just kind of started bouncing the idea around of like hey would would you be open to the idea of maybe reissuing uh, some more, you know, of those figures? We let him go out because he was being asked by a lot of folks too. So, um, started having discussions with him as an eight and his agent. Uh, we put together uh, a kind of plan for that, and that has now led to what we're calling Bricks of the Mouse Guard Two, which is uh, a re-release of the first seven figures. So I'm going to put those back into a small production again, and. Uh, six new figures, which we didn't do the first time around. So now that takes us to Shelly's question. So ask me that question again, Shelly. <laughs> well, all, all the heads are just pretty much differentiated by color and character, except for uh, one of them this year in part of round two, where part of his ear is missing and his eye has, has been clawed. So what did you, did you create a new mold for that or did you gotcha. rework one? So um, much like Kenner Batman, which is kind of tends to be the same Batman mold over and over again, they would, cause molds are very costly to produce. So what they would do is they would just take the existing, uh, hero molded parts and then just you know run them in different colors and add different accessories to them so you could take your batman and have like arctic camo batman basket weaving batman unicorn batman whatever it was and you know even in the lego movies they sort of poke fun at that idea um so that's kind of the beauty of the mouse guard stuff is the sculpture is just a tremendous sculpture we spent a lot a lot of time getting that mouse head to draft correctly in the mold and kind of capture that spirit of the mouse guard figures. And every mouse guard head in the series is from the same mold. So we'll run a base color in that. We will do different painting finishes on them. And then we usually will run them in colors that will match uh, reasonably existing Lego minifigure bodies. So. Certain colors are really hard to get in volume from uh, Lego in the secondary market. So that drives some of the color directions for what things are. Um, the character you're talking about is called Bastion, and he kind of has battle damage on him. So Bastion has an ear that's been chewed off, and he's got uh, kind of a dead eye with some scarring on it. So the way that'll be manufactured is his eye on the left side will not be painted in but he will get a special printing to create that like three claw scar pattern. And his ear damage is actually manually done on each head. So there's kind of a, a Whitney hole punch that's got the right diameter. And that cuts out two little chunks out of his ear to kind of look like a bite mark. Yeah. He has like a special little process for him. Yeah. I was wondering if you guys were just going to do that, just cut little pieces out of the ear. <laughs> Cause, uh, yeah, cause very smart. It, when you look at the character, that's kind of what it looks like. Yeah. And there's really no justification to do a whole new mold for that because you can achieve the result you want to get to with just a, a little bit of extra sort of handcraft work on it. I love Bastion. What can I say? He's the best. He's so cool. Uh, so the six new figures are, uh, I really wanted to pull more from the very first uh, Mouse Guard book, which is Fall. And in that, there's you kind of learn the history of this character, or the beginnings of it, of a character called the Black Axe. And there's this uh, one weapon, which you can probably guess what shape it is and what color it is, called the Black Axe. And whichever mouse wields it, is sort of this perpetual immortal character, the Black Axe. You come to find out that it's kind of passed on from keeper to keeper, and there's like an even deeper, richer history in it than that. And this one mouse named Midnight 
decides to stage a rebellion and overthrow the mouse guard who are sort of the, uh, you know, the Rangers. They're, they're sort of the establishment of, of the mouse guard world. So they are protectors of all the mice, but this one particular mouse midnight kind of, I guess, feels they're a little oppressive in that they're, you know, instigating their will on all the other mice. So he gets a hold of the black ax and there's a whole a storyline where he this rebellion starts. So um, Midnight is his name. So he's one of the new characters we're doing. Um, he has guards that have similar armor to him called the Axe Army. So we're doing those. We're also doing uh, one of the characters from the first series. His name is Liam, who's kind of a, a dark orange colored mouse. There's a point in the book where he dons the armor of the Axe Army to sort of infiltrate it. So uh, he's the Kickstarter exclusive figure for the set. So he'll only be available to people that pledge in the Kickstarter. He won't be uh, available for retail sale. Then the last three figures, uh, there's one called Delvin, who is a shield bearer. He has a special symbol on his shield, and he's one of the few mice with a cape that has animal fur on it. Um, because he's kind of a bit of a, uh, he's kind of out there. Actually, both Devin and Bastion, who's the other character, kind of are a little more rugged, outdoorsy type mice. They, they have a, a lot of history behind them. Um, Bastion is the one that's got his ear chewed off because he's been in a lot of battles. And he also will use the crazy arms, uh, which allow him to hold a bow and arrow. And then the last character is... Uh, one that's really not dealt with too deeply in the books, but there is an illustration of them on one of the covers. And uh, it's called Ghost of Kala. And Kala, I believe, was a matriarch slash kind of librarian from the old history of Mouse Guard. And she's uh, the first mouse that will have like glow-in-the-dark parts on her. So that's kind of cool. Yeah, so that's that's the new stuff that's coming out for this uh, this re-release. That's awesome, Shelley. When you are um, photographing these mouse card figures, are you familiar with the mouse card books and and the stories with all these characters, or are you kind of using them as your own characters and telling your own new stories with them? I was attracted to them originally because they were, reminded me of Redwall, and that's another classic animals in the woods fighting good versus evil. And so that's what was, so after I bought the book, bought the uh, figures from Guy, I had to go buy the book ostensibly for my child and said, okay, Noah, read these. He, of course, like in one ear out the other, I read them. I love them. So I had to reverse. I, I went backwards. Figures first, then the books. So I, no, I, even, you you know me, I don't, I don't, my, my figures never go to war. So I'm... When I'm photographing them, they're in between the spaces, so they're off having adventures in the woods, maybe plotting, maybe relaxing, maybe on their way back or forward, even though guys got me got doing some things that are much more straight out of the book. Uh, recently, I did one of, uh, who is it? Oh, uh, Conrad what, from original series. Uh, fighting the crab which is actually a very tragic moment in the books why i chose that one i have no idea but it's okay so a little bit of both that makes sense that kind of tracks with what i assumed just knowing your your work and and your history with all that stuff you know actually that gave me an idea do you see alice very often because you should borrow some of the builds from Mouse guard. I bet you she's got some. She'd let you borrow to take pictures in. I'll, I'll, I'll have to. I'll ask her since we're both in the women's brick initiative. Um, I'll, I'll poke at her and see if she still has any of those around. She might have them in storage. Yeah, or she might have. She built the library from that. Ah, that would be fun. Stained glass windows. I bet you could do all kinds of neat lighting tricks in that. That, that would be cool. All right, I'll, I'll poke all at right. her. All right, take note of that. <laughs> I bet you we can make her do that. Yep. Yeah. Now there's a digital record of it too, Shelly. So we'll we'll okay. be following back up to see if you actually did ask and then all that. <laughs> On the next podcast, right? The follow up. Yeah. Exactly. So um, let's switch gears a little bit and talk about Kickstarter. Um, I, I want to talk about what it's like to to run a Kickstarter. I've helped 
I, I of course know what Kickstarter is. I've um, contributed to a couple Kickstarters and I've helped like clients film videos for their own Kickstarters, but I've never actually had to like run and maintain and follow up with the Kickstarter. And I know that there's a lot of work that goes into that as well. So Guy, can you talk about that a bit? Like what is it like once you actually have everything ready for the Kickstarter and get it kicked off? You, you have to follow it up with things like goals and rewards for people and updates and stuff like that. Can you talk about what it's like for you running the actual Kickstarter campaigns? Yeah, the, the two most important words for anyone who's considering a Kickstarter is shipping. Those two words, shipping. Uh, it's one, <laughs> you get it though. Um, I think people, you have to build a project with the intent of great success and budget it that way. I think where most people fail in Kickstarters is they don't consider how expensive shipping is. So although you're just sending like little tiny Lego parts through the mail, you know, what does it cost to send a letter? 45 cents, 50 cents. So you think, Oh, I can just stuff it in an envelope and ship it. But once anything gets technically past thick paper in an envelope, you then have to send things as a first class package. <clears throat> and now your costs to ship are going to be upwards of $3 to as many as $5, depending on how many ounces it is. And if you go over the magic 15 ounces or 16 ounces, you can no longer ship it at a first class rate. You now have to ship it at the uh, like standard parcel rate. So really Kickstarter is more an exercise in uh, – Logistics, shipping, and paper pushing. Hmm. What you, whatever widget you're going to make is almost secondary. Hopefully it's a good widget. Hopefully it's a widget that people want to throw a lot of support at. But ultimately it's about logistics. And if you can't succeed well at logistics, it doesn't matter what you're going to put on Kickstarter. I mean, it's kind of a boring answer, but that's that's really the answer. <laughs> um yeah, it's about spreadsheets. It's about projecting um, costs on things you may not know fully what the costs are. Um, there are certain economies of scale you want to try to hope for and build in. And obviously, the more people support your project, the more you can uh, amortize the initial investment cost across everybody. So um, the best description I ever heard was, which car is more expensive to design and produce, a Volkswagen or a Lamborghini? And, you know, the first answer you'd give is like, well, the Lamborghini, of course. But technically, they both cost about the same if you're only going to produce one of them because you still have to invest all the time in design, in all the molds, in all of the uh, artistry, in all the manufacture. They're, they're both about the same, but you take a Volkswagen where you're going to produce, let's say, 5 million of them, and you can take that initial design and production cost and spread it across 5 million cars to where those costs barely impact the cost of the car. If I'm making a Lamborghini, and let's say I'm only going to make 100 or 200 of them at the end, that's much fewer places to amortize those initial costs against. So... That's what I think is cool about Kickstarter is the more people get involved in it, the more your cost as a creator go down and then the more goodies you can you can give them as a thank you for supporting you. And uh, I think that community aspect of it is, is what makes Kickstarter great. Plus, it's a good reality check, too. You might think that, a, uh, you know, the world needs an electric dog polisher. You may build the best electric dog polisher in the world and your aunt and your mom told you it's a great idea. But when it goes on Kickstarter, unless you have enough people who are going to commit with their wallets to support it, it's, it's just a real good reality check to what your ideas are and your concepts are. Yeah, it's, it's good that way. I mean, very law of the jungle, but that's not a bad thing. Did I answer your question? I might have gone on a tangent there. Oh, no, no, no. Yeah, totally. You, you definitely answered it. Um, so once a Kickstarter is successful or unsuccessful, then what happens? So then it takes some time for a Kickstarter to, you know, give you your money. Uh, they're going to take their percentage. Uh, percentage is going to go to uh, whoever the fulfillment chunk is at that point. I forget who it is now, but it's uh, 
the percentage goes up and down a little bit, if I recall, depending on how much you raise. So they get their chunk out of it. Then that chunk comes to you. So now you have a big old chunk of cash and you're like, yes, Shelly and I are going to go to the Bahamas. But we can't go to the Bahamas. We first have to pay for those big expenses up front. So if you're manufacturing something, it generally means you're going to put down a pretty substantial deposit to uh, whoever you're manufacturing with to get them committed to it. Part of that money you take in is going to go towards shipping. Although uh, lately, just because shipping costs have gone up and it's much harder to manage that part, um, it's not uncommon for a lot of projects now to charge the shipping after the project. And I'll try to explain that in a way that that uh, shows the, the issue there. So let's say I'm making a widget and that widget costs $5 to ship to the USA and $15 to ship anywhere outside of the USA. The way that the Kickstarter structure is, they don't really segregate your shipping charges from your project costs that you're trying to raise. So if I needed to raise $1,000 for a project and 100 people pledge to it, $10 each, the local ones are going to pay an additional $5. The international ones are going to pay an additional $15. So that all goes toward my total raised. And you as a project creator, you don't really have a good way to regulate that. Like if all your pledges were all international folks, they're all going to get boosted $15 in shipping or basically two thirds greater than if they were local. And it's no, no real easy way for you to see that and reflect that in your total. Hmm. So, yeah, it just creates a lot of issues. And plus, if you have a couple rewards that might go outside of that, uh, that first class packaging thing. So rather than try to mix that smoke and mirrors into the money you're raising, it's easier just to say, hey, I need to raise a thousand bucks. I don't care where the people are investing from. I just want to see that people are throwing a thousand bucks toward my project. And then as an aside from that, in a different format, we'll go ahead and um, collect for the shipping. So I, I like to use these guys called Backer Kit. Um, they were a fairly new company when I first started using them. And now they've, they've really done well and grown a lot. Um, and basically, I pay them a fee to wrangle all of my, my information. So they will take all the addressing materials out of my Kickstarter file. They will set up a new sort of interactive uh, stopping point for all the people that are your pledge people. And from there, they can put add-ons on, they can adjust, uh, adjust their mailing addresses. Um, you can track who's responded and who hasn't. Because within Kickstarter, there's not really any really, really great tools to manage a large pool of customers and shipping very well. They, they really are, are not, that's not their goal as a company. So Backerkit does that really, really great. And, and basically when it's all said and done, you hit a button and all of your manifests and all of your shipping labels all kind of print out like in this giant continuous string um, off your zebra printer. Uh, and then at some point you're, you know, pulling labels and sticking them on envelopes and you're fulfilling everything. Um, some, some campaigns are really easy where everyone's buying in on the same thing. So it, let's say it's a book. Everyone just gets the same book. So you just put a book in there, put a label on, go away. My stuff tends to be a lot of uh, what we would call snowflake orders, meaning that they're all unique. So every order usually has a particular color choice or a certain number of add-ons. Um, that kind of takes a little while longer to pack just because everyone's a little special, but I kind of don't mind that. I think I, I like the idea that, you know, everyone really got specifically what they wanted to get and they weren't forced to get like a bunch of things they didn't want. Um, and then once it all goes out, since if you do like through backer kit that shows and tracks everything out there, if someone doesn't get a package, you can track where it is. And um, 
Yeah, I've been really fortunate. Everything, for the most part, has gotten to where it's supposed to get to. Um, I've had some weird shipments to Russia where they never showed up. And then six months later, this uh, package full of broken stuff that clearly had been uh, driven over by a car tire came back to me from Russia, which, hey, you know what? Bless those Russians. They were very, they're very reputable um, postage community. So, guy, I know that these these uh, your kickstarters are are complicated, and and I can just imagine the the nightmare, the shipping nightmare for all those snowflake orders on your end. But as a someone who who buys on my end, I love them because I don't always buy what I need, and then you always go, "Hey, did you forget anything?" Because before <laughs> I ship, you got a chance to order again. And every time I go in and go, whoops, okay, I'll take three more of these and five more of those. I love that. Yeah, you shouldn't put the drug dealer in charge of the pharmacy. That's, that's <laughs> never a good idea. You're right. They call it plastic crack for a reason. <laughs> right, plastic crack. Um, and yeah, you always want to try to make cool opportunities for your, your supporters, too. Like maybe you uh, have stuff at a discount. Or, you know, just generally you want to reward them for supporting you. It's like, hey, this is what it'll cost, you know, later at uh, for everyone else. Here's your chance to get it at, you know, 10%, 20% off just because you're a part of the Kickstarter. So I like to do that, too. I hope that people really support this because I would just love to see more photos of these characters roll by my Instagram feed because I just... They're just so much fun and really inspiring and the perfect little figures for storytelling. They are kind of cool. Did I, did I ever get you a purple space mouse? <laughs> I don't think I have a purple space mouse. Oh, I might have to get you a purple one. Yeah, well, you you know what I really want is the, the pigs versus cows. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, one one day. I mean, so that that's an early mold set. And uh, probably, I don't know if I'll ever run it again, but I may take one or two of the figures from that and eventually sort of maybe, uh, I don't know, refine them or upgrade them sort of to the level that I'm building stuff at now. Um, maybe we'll get pigs one day. Yeah, if I'm doing like a flesh or a pink mold set or something, then I... I can certainly imagine getting some pigs or cows snuck in there too. Awesome. Maybe that's a, a cool Kickstarter reward or something. You get a pig head as well as whatever, whatever mouse guard you're ordering or something. <laughs> Porker. Yeah. Yeah. There we go. So how can people uh, support the new Kickstarter at, at the time that we're recording? This It's not live yet, but um, when is it going live? What's your plan for that? And how can people support it and get these cool new mouse guard figures? So let me cut the calendar. Cause I'm going to say Tuesday but that could be one of, I don't know, 300, 400 days during the year. It could be that Tuesday. So let me give you the right one. Um, right now, the plan is for it to launch on February 11th, which is a Tuesday. And that will be uh, on Kickstarter. And again, that's Bricks of the Mouse Guard 2. And that will give you a chance to get all of the original seven custom minifigures that we did from the first campaign, as well as a chance to go after the six new ones we produced. Um, and pretty much it's just like, um, you're just going for like a buy-in level. So the more that, the, the higher the level you pledge into, the uh, lower your cost per figure, if that makes sense. Hopefully I did that. So uh, in, in short, um, generally the figures sell for $20 a piece. Um, if you pledge for just one figure, your buy-in rate is 20. If it's three to five, your buy-in rate's 19. And then I think if you do for five or more, your buy-in rate is 18. So if you wanted to buy 20 figures, you could pledge in at the five or greater level. And then, um, once the campaign closes, you could get as many as you want at that buy-in rate. Nice. It's very easier to manage that way. Um, and the, the, the funding goal on it is really small. I think it's only like seven, 7,500 maybe. Um, Cause I want us to hit it quickly. And then I have a couple ideas for some stretch goal goodies that we'll add onto it as well. 
Ooh, stretch goals. <laughs> love <laughs> a good stretch goal. He loves us some stretch goals. Yeah, what are stretch goals for people that might not be familiar with that on Kickstarter? So um, stretch goals are basically saying, hey, our minimum cost is, let's say, $1,000 to make this project. And if we get there, we'll be really, really super happy. That would be awesome. But hey, if we raise significantly more than what our funding goal is, then we will either give you more stuff or uh, offer you more things you could potentially add on. So for example, um, a lot of tabletop games, let's say they want to do uh, you know, big zombie game. Base, big zombie game, let's say, costs 50 bucks a piece to pledge into, and uh, our fundraising goal is 5000 And we might say, hey, if we hit, everyone gets a bonus zombie in their zombie kit. And then if we hit 10000 everyone gets a bonus exploded car model. And there's entire campaigns that literally are just built around stretch goals. Like it's a, a marketing ploy and a fairly successful one, but they will already build, they will purposely uh, make their funding goal low, knowing that they're going to hit a pretty big number. And the bigger that number gets, the more stuff they add into the game. And it's, it's very good for marketing because it basically encourages people to go recruit for you because it's never going to cost me more than my initial pledge amount. But more people getting involved means more we all get for our pledge. So, uh, yeah, it's it's usually works out great. Stretch goals are pretty awesome. Well, uh, Shelly, was there anything else you wanted to touch on or, or ask Guy about before we wrap up here? Uh, no, I, I think uh, I think we covered everything. I, this is really fascinating. Just the whole process of where Guy came from and. This, the designing and creating the sculpt and the manufacturing process, it's amazing how much goes into this crazy little character that I'm, I will confess I might take a little bit for granted. And as I, I appreciate them all the more because they really are just a beautiful head sculpt. And, and I, then, I have a Shelly question. Yeah, go for it. Yeah. Um, Shelly, do you ever feel guilty when you capture the souls of people with your demonic camera device like are you going to give those souls back never i eat them <laughs> yeah so i stay so young those are the questions we should be asking james yeah, that's the, the, the hard-hitting questions exactly yeah because i don't know what she's been collecting souls for a long time with her devil box yeah years years and years yeah. Back. yeah she got my yeah. soul a long time ago so <laughs> So I think Kelly's like 300 and something years old, and she doesn't look a day over 200. So, on over there. A little weird. All right. That'll be on a follow up episode. Let's see what happens. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. And, uh, yeah. Maybe we could do a follow up episode later. Um, you know, once this Kickstarter is done and, and you've started the new one that you're, you're you've kind of teased here. Uh, I can't wait to hear more details about that. So, but yeah, thank you so much for coming on to this show and, and sharing so much of the behind the scenes process. Like Shelly said, it is so fascinating. And um, we're recording this on the 6th. So your Kickstarter launches in just a few days. So I'll try to get this episode out either like the day it launches or, or a couple days after so that people can get involved and start getting those new mouse guard figures. So um, I'll, I'll include the link to the Kickstarter in the show notes for this episode and on the blog post at toyphotographers.com so uh, people can go check it out for themselves. Fantastic. And do you need any uh, pictures? Let me know, and I'm happy to give you some pictures as well. Yeah, awesome. Yeah, I'll uh, I'll definitely ask for those, so I'll, I'll follow up in an email after this. But, um, but yeah, again, thank you so much. This was such a pleasure, and I look forward to getting you back on someday to, to talk more Kickstarter stuff and, and figure out whatever it is that you're teasing for your next one. It sounds like it's going to be pretty exciting. You know, it was a pleasure was all mine to be on your blog, and uh, Shelly... One day we're going to the Bahamas. We just we have to be responsible enough for these Kickstarter funds, but we're going. The only thing we're going to be able to afford after your Kickstarter is maybe the the bargain basement trip to Vegas. <laughs> oh, it's going to be like grilled cheese and the museum. Okay. <laughs> Still okay. That I'm down. Be fun. Yeah. 
Okay. Yeah, sounds like a good day on the Vegas Strip. So. Yeah. All right, guys. Thank you very much. Thank you so much for listening. You can find new episodes of this podcast and daily articles on creativity and toy photography on our website, toyphotographers.com. You can subscribe to the show on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, or wherever you get your podcasts. We also ask that you please leave us a five-star review. That'll help spread the word about the show and help us get noticed. You can find us on Facebook at Toy Photographers and on Instagram at underscore Toy Photographers underscore. Music for this week's episode is courtesy of freemusicarchive.org. Our editor is Josh Kittleson. And finally, you can reach out to us with comments, concerns, recommendations, etc. at toyphotographypod at gmail.com. Thanks for listening. I'll see you guys next week.